0: Listening to the Local Futures podcast. In this series, we explore the power of a growing worldwide movement, the movement to shift away from corporate globalization and consumerism and to strengthen local economies and place based cultures instead. In this episode, Helena Norberg Hodge talks to Vandana Shiva. Vandana trained as a quantum physicist but turned her attention to campaigning for the rights of small farmers, seed savers and local communities in her home country of India, when she witnessed the imposition of industrial agriculture and its tragic impacts on health, ecology and livelihoods. Today she is surely one of the most powerful voices in challenging corporate rule and a leading proponent of food sovereignty and localization. Vandana and Helena have been close colleagues and friends for over 40 years. They worked side by side in the International Forum on Globalization, which raised a powerful challenge to free trade and megatechnology at a time when neoliberalism was taking off. In this conversation, Helena and Vandana reminisce about old friends and people who inspired them both. They begin with the discussion of the CHIPCO, or non-violent tree-hugging, movement of India in the 70s. It's a movement in which thousands of villagers stood up for their forests and their livelihoods in the face of destructive industrial projects. This, and other stories they share, are vital legacies for today's activism. I know
1: it's so good to be talking to you today, and I'm... So happy and honored to have been working side-by-side side with you for now about 40 years, since the early 80s. And, right. Yeah. And I you know, I think we were both early on very inspired by Sundala Bahuguna and the whole Chipko movement um, in India. I remember Sundala, when he came to visit me in Ladakh, when I was feeling a bit despairing about how difficult it was to fight off, you know, the promoters of DDT and all this stuff that had been outlawed in the West that was being brought in and feeling pretty down. He was saying, well, the only thing I can offer you is, is ridicule and um, despair, but you just have to keep going. There's just no, you have to fight for life. And you worked closely with him in the Chipko movement
2: as well, didn't you? Very, very closely. And in fact, even before I kind of woke up to the Chipko movement, when I saw the forest go uh, and I made a commitment to come every vacation from Canada, I was still doing my PhD in Canada in the 70s when um, I'd come every holiday, every summer holiday, every winter holiday to come and volunteer. And uh, so, uh, you know, Sundalal Bhaguna, his wife Bimla Bhaguna, were actually the amazing teachers because it's from their ashram that we would then go off. You know, they tell us to go do a padhyatra, you know, the pilgrimage, walking pilgrimage. The, the movement of Chipko was based on the old Gandhian principles of non cooperation, but non cooperation through love and non violence. And that's why the idea of hugging, Chipko as hugging, was so important. But also the idea of um, self-support, you know? The women used to come with fistfuls of rice or wheat, and then a 100 of them would be in the forest by rotation. And there'd be cooking going on in the, in the forest, totally by the fistful of donation. That's why Chipko was so strong. That's why the farmer's movement for 14 months in India has been so strong because they were supporting themselves. And another very important principle of of uh, of Chipko really was uh, that uh, to, to you know respect nature and uh, and reconnect the economy back to ecology. Yeah, yeah. Because there was a particular slogan. I remember this so clearly. The 1977 it was, and the, uh, we'd done a whole uh, paddyatra that side. Adwani was the village, and the wife was fighting against the logging. And the husband, had, who was the chief, village chief, had got the contract for logging.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And, uh, and the women brought out lanterns in, on that day. And, um, you know, when the forest officers and the police who were there to arrest them said, you stupid women, can't you see the sun is out? And they said, well, it was never for the sun. It was for you. Because you see these forests as timber mines. And that is part of industrialism, yeah? To reduce the world... To merely minds, you know. Now we are genetic minds. So now we are data minds. But we are all minds, and uh, um, and they said you 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 uh, you know the what real what these forests really produce is soil and water and pure air, and soil and water and pure air, oxygen are the basis of life. So you know, so clearly it was about the economy of life. Was the economy of greed? And that's what Gandhi had said when he had said the earth is enough for everyone's needs, but not for a few people's greed. And in the, so therefore, this separation that had been created, artificial, between economy and ecology, economy is about extraction, growth, profits, and ecology was nothing. Uh, in a way, it brought ancient wisdom, you know, to the front.
1: Absolutely. So, and you know, I've often talked about eco-literacy, meaning we need both economic literacy and ecological. The economic literacy is to understand how deadly this dominant economic system is. And the ecological literacy is to truly understand that it's the only economy. It's the only place where we derive all our needs. It's yeah. And how many people in the modern world have lost sight of that? It's also interesting, you know, I was mentioning Sundar and he was a male... Quite vocal leader, but it was actually all these thousands of women at the grassroots who were really doing the activism, wasn't it? I I find this a sort of picture around the world now that I see so many women at the grassroots doing the work of the deep reconnection to living Mother Gaia, whether it's the seeds and the understanding the primal importance of food and farming and, of course, of community, the human community building and reconnection. And yet, very often, it's white men who are the voices we hear. And I think both you and I have known some very special white men who were very important leaders. And I'm thinking particularly of of Doug Tompkins and Teddy Goldsmith who ended up funding the IFG, the Forum on Globalization. That was such an important group in raising awareness about this corporate takeover of the world. And I think we we really need to raise awareness about the process that has led to a few billionaires owning most of the world's wealth. And that process is what we were trying to raise awareness about in the forum of for globalization. Yeah, this process of trade treaties.
2: I think there's a big difference of white men as colonizers, included those who colonize movements, um, and that is that is so wrong. It's violent. Uh, you know, the the white men like the Clives and the Cooks. Um, they created nothing. They just plundered. They killed. Yeah. And that's one thing. But, you know, our dear friends, the Doug's and the Teddies and the Jerry-less, you know, gerrymanders, uh, they were thinking beings. Yeah. They were not appropriating anything from anyone. They were giving what they had, their wealth, to build movements. And that's what makes it so different. Yeah. They were not colonizers. No. They were contributors to movement building and that's why the international forum on globalization literally took the new mythology of colonization of our times the mythology of globalization the mythology of free trade and we just broke that myth and shut it down in seattle no and and you know seattle built on nearly on decades of work you were there helena when another great man we've lost recently, Muhammad Idris. Yeah. Uh, I think we were, Right Livelihood community meeting in Sweden. That's in some right. some high school. That was a
1: meeting I organized and it was called the okay. School Progress.
2: Out of that, then Doug, that's the first time I met Doug, and, yeah. we, and then the technology dialogue started. The yes. first dialogues were technology dialogue. That's right. Out That's of right. that grew much later IFG, That's when right. the GATT started to become important. But yeah. long before GAT, we were looking at the colonizing industrial system yeah. together. Yeah. So they are, they've been lovely men. We are so privileged to have known yeah. them. Yes. We are so privileged to have lived through a period where together we could make a big difference. Yeah. The period is, now, of course, colonization meant that men were pulled out of the economy of life, as I call it, and the women were left to take yeah. care of life. And that's my book, Staying Alive. That's Maria Meese and my book, Feminism. That's what we've tried to carve out. And now, as our very existence is threatened, yeah. our future is threatened, you know, women are are the ones leading not just the actions on the ground and maintaining those economies, but the articulation of those economies. You see, in, in the 80s, we were articulating. Sundalal bahuna was articulating Chipko. But he and his wife and all the women were together in Chipko as equals. You know, He was not a patriarch.
1: Yeah. He
2: was not a colonizer. He and his wife had the most beautiful partnership. And I don't know, most people don't know. You know, at 13, he joined the independence movement of India, 13 years old. And then, of course, he was arrested. So 13-year-old teenager. And and then he escaped and went off to Lahore, which was still part of India, and and studied there and did his master's there and became a journalist and a writer. And that's why he ended up being quite a spokesperson. When he came back and India got independence, uh, the Congress party, you know, he was the head of the Congress party of our region um, in Delhi, And uh, he, he was a very important uh, activist. He, you know, the proposal came from uh, about him getting married and he accepted. But Bimla, Bimla said, I, I don't want to get married. And she put her foot down. And then eventually she said, okay, I will get married only on one condition. You will leave politics because I don't want a man who works in the system of power. I want to marry a man who will be with me in the spirit of service to the earth and community. And he gave up his, you know, he had been the chief minister of our state and he gave that up and they built a little ashram by hand together, two of them. So he wasn't a patriarch, he wasn't a grabber. He was one of the most gentle souls and uh, and Gandhi, another gentle soul who has inspired all of these people, he had a daily prayer. or istri The prayer says, "Make me more womanly, womanly in terms of human quality." That's the point. Yeah, human quality of the feminine as the creative, caring force of the universe. But this is
1: also what's so wonderful now, that there are, you know, men leaders who are recognizing, I mean, as the world is waking up to the need to respect the feminine and respect, you know, Mother Gaia as the mother who supports us and is life itself. So I think, that I didn't realize that, that's a wonderful prayer. That is a wonderful prayer. And of course, our dear friend Teddy, you know, he had experiences in traditional culture that has made him weep, and it made him realize that this is how we should live. And he was a champion of a traditional earth-based culture and, as you know, devoted his whole life to that and was a, a great friend and inspiration to both of us. And then Doug, who passionately loved nature and had started this big business, Esprit, and realized that as he traveled around the world, everywhere he saw destruction and decided to sell his company to do everything he could and spend every penny
2: just about saving the earth. You're so right that it's because they had experienced other cultures. They were wealthy men who realized the real wealth isn't money, you know? And therefore they were put it at the service. So uh, yeah, I I mean, I would ask anyone who wants to understand what's really happening about climate change. It's not about using a hugely energy intensive and a hugely resource intensive system to maintain a colonizing industrial order. Everyone should read the the IFG's uh, publications as well as Teddy and Jerry's book on alternatives to economic globalization. I think all of the, everything of that time is what foretold what's happening today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Its absence would have made it all worse, but I think it is important to wake up to what we were saying in the 90s in terms of how you deal with this period, which is being, you know, if the WTO was an engineered project out of Davos and World Economic Forum. Now the great reset of the World Economic Forum is what people are really living through, you know? And when you want it, shut the economy down. When you want it, declare, you know, just declare emergency as you want it and deny the true emergencies that these greedy, limitless, wealth-accumulating billionaires are creating. They They are the emergency. They yeah. are the images. They are
1: the virus. Yeah, but I, I also would say again that with our work, it was so clear that the corporation itself is a machine that is, you know, as this giant machine, absolutely blindly focused only on profit for shareholders. And that's also where our friend David Corton did an excellent book, you know, When corporations yep. rule the World, and he was also part of IFT. And I think it's quite important that people focus on that structure because otherwise they think, well, let's get some better politicians in place, let's get some better CEOs, and then everything will be all right. And, of course, it isn't.
2: So, you know, the first corporations are really the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company. The idea of the corporation was created to take all the wealth and carry no risk and put that to the public. So the corporation was a coalition of rich men, yeah. the plunderers of that time, who by no matter what not only got the, they, they got the, the charter from the Queens and Kings, they got the freedom to create private armies and the free trade agreement, the first free trade agreement was written by the British East India Company, by bribing the mobile court 50 rupees or something like that, a clerk to yeah. sign the free trade agreement of the right honorable East India Company. And what was that? That they have the right to use military. They will not be taxed. They can invade hmm. and, and treat invasion as trade. And meantime, the trade, you know, I, I get shocked that even in India, the memory that India was the biggest trading nation. when colonized. Why were they called East India companies? Yeah. Because we were the richest yeah. place. And they wanted this. So the corporation was a theft entity. It was an irresponsibility entity. And you're so right, the corporation. We, I did, IFG was created to stop corporate globalization and identify the corporation as the disease. I don't know if you know the lovely people in... Um, I think lawyers in, in Canada made a film called The Corporation. Of course, I do. And it's then hard they hard made hard. the new film called the new, huh? the, the, the new Corporation or something. Oh, I haven't and, seen that. Yeah. And you won't believe it. YouTube has prevented it being screened. I do believe it, actually, Vandana, because what I'm
1: seeing is that this particular issue of free trade treaties that have given corporations more and more power, that issue is clearly banned by Facebook. You know, we've been shadow banned. And particularly, you know, when you highlight, when you shed light on this ongoing process of negotiating trade treaties, you are silenced. You are uh, demonized and silenced in a way that we, you know, it's, it's frightening. And we've just got to try to keep hammering away Um, Because I think without understanding that, people do not, they're not looking at a structural way out of this madness. They're not looking at, you know, really by understanding that history. And I I just also want to go back to saying that at the beginning of this free trade madness, back as it started, we were talking about white men who were overtly misogynist, overtly racist, overtly anti-nature. Their values were spelled out clearly. And that was the foundation of this system whereby these global traders got more and more power than governments. And it's continued in a linear way with a bit of softening, you know, with a bit of softening after the second world war, there were some governments that were trying to be a bit kinder and trying to deal with it. And of course, India was leaning towards Russia and try as Sweden was, you know, my native country, trying to um, modify the pressure of this monstrous global economy, but not enough. You know, both Sweden and India had been affected by it even before the 90s. And then gradually we see, as I see it, this system taking over and creating this global system, where the media and technology plays such a big role in shaping this global consumer monoculture, as you have also written about, this monoculture of the mind disseminated worldwide, creating everywhere a loss of self-esteem, a loss of cultural self-esteem, a loss of individual self-esteem, along with a loss of self-reliance. And I think, yeah, I think, you know, now is the time for us to reclaim, <laughs> to reclaim that genuine sovereignty, that genuine self-respect, yes. and and the real individualism where people can be proud of who they are, whoever they are. But it's it's it, you know, it's very confusing now because now in the media you're allowed to have dark skin, you're allowed to be. You don't anymore as a woman have to be a blonde, blue-eyed Barbie doll, but you have to belong to the urban consumer culture. As you know, the rural population, the vital importance of food and farming, that's something that does not get a voice in this dominant media. So, do you do you see where do you see now the the greatest hope? Um, Do you see, I mean, I've seen everywhere, that people are waking
2: up. So, you know, yes, the structures that the colonizing men have created for extracting wealth um, and colonizing, not just the third world, uh, creating the third world, um, colonizing nature, colonizing women, colonizing all indigenous cultures it's one colonization and that's why with all the diversity you know maintaining all those sovereignties that uh, the australian aboriginal people are not the north american canadian natives but their principles are the same and that's why it's time for a whole new unity of diverse struggles exactly like we created in the international forum on globalization we yeah. knew we knew that if we don't join hands, there'll only be the colonizer story. How India became rich, how so-and-so became wealthy, how all the boats rose, you know? And all of the rhetoric of that time, including level, let's never forget that as soon as we were successful in shutting down WTO in Seattle through democracy, Zolik wrote a piece in the International Herald Tribune that we were terrorists for questioning their new colonialism yeah
1: yeah immediately as we were there demonstrating in seattle they sent out this message to about how undemocratic this was that we the people were on the streets that we were holding discussions about what this meant they were on the inside telling our governments what to do and then they accused us of not being democratic but you know people
2: yeah there's still a yes. lot of awareness racing yeah. so i think The understanding the structures is one thing, but structures work with process. And the process is basically a process from colonial times to corporate globalization of the 90s to today. I'll call this the reset World Economic Forum globalization of today. It's the Gates and the Economic Forum have kind of, you know, the Monsantos have taken a back seat. And the front seat are the Philanthro capitalists and these invisible players who have been setting the agenda forever. What about the back seat of Vanguard and BlackRock? You know, which isn't such a back seat, actually, it's just that we don't see it so much. But no, it's, it's these
1: it's the, yeah.
2: yeah. So that you know, what did globalization do? <coughs> it tore down all the rules that allowed justice in society, democracy in society. Equality in society tore it all down and made it all possible to accumulate. So you get the tech billionaires emerging. You get the Black Rocks and the Vanguards. Uh, You know, they created, they they were small entities. I mean, Vanguard is really a continuity of the Dutch East India Company. They were small. It's It's the collapse of Wall Street that allowed their growth to grow like this. And this year, BlackRock is $9.5 trillion. $9.5 trillion in a decade. Yeah. Now, they then, you know, the billionaires own the, uh, own, you know, their money is sitting there because the billionaires are operating in these terribly opaque, non-transparent ways. These asset management funds are opaque. But yeah. they own all the corporations. That's what my book, Oneness versus 1%, that I wrote with my son, is all about. Because I was so puzzled. I said, well, How come Gates is marching on the stage with the heads of state? Since when did billionaires yeah. become masters yeah. of governments? You know, it was so clear with the way he was functioning, he and Zuckerberg in Paris in 2015. And then by a Bortman Center, I said, I want to see the arithmetic. You know, who's bigger? Who has so much? And then I realized neither of them own themselves. They're owned by the asset management funds. And if you look at any corporation today, just cut through the top three, BlackRock, Vanguard, which is the biggest owner of BlackRock. So there too, they are not competing. They want uh, State Street, You know, they have the billionaire money. They are the money of the 0.0001%. And, and they-, they then are using, creating in- instruments Right now, what they're doing is accelerating what the World Trade Organization did. Now, if you remember, I know, why did I start saving seeds? Because of GATT and Monsanto and all of these companies. Because what they wanted to do was criminalize seed saving and make their piracy and patenting the only legal entity. What was the sanitary and phytosanitary agreement? The Cokes and the Pepsis wanted to criminalize local artisanal food and make junk food the only thing in the market. So today what we are seeing is the billionaires who own the assets that the asset management funds, the Black Rocks and Vanguard control, their club called the World Economic Forum, that all of them together are trying the ultimate criminalization of being human. And what does being human mean? Being free to grow your food, being free to be able to think, being free to be able to speak. Why are Assange, why is Assange in prison for having warned us that the military, the US Army, created these totally illegal, illegitimate wars? And just because they spoke the truth, they're in jail, and those who create the wars are part of this billionaire club. So I think this double tactic of make the criminals free and have no rule for them and take the free and criminalize everything. This criminalization is what we are witnessing with the the silencing of the voices of sanity, silencing of the voices of freedom, silencing of the voices of community. And therefore it is really what is the contest? It's between fake and real, you know? And that's the free and the dictatorship and the fascist, you see? It's, it's really a hot, and the clash is such, and the instruments are so violent that if they get their way, and they've said it, by 2030, the reset will be accomplished, you know? By 2030, no farmers, by 2030, no food, all slab lab food, you know? totally lab food by 2030, no, no animals, no chicken, no, no, remove them all. And they, instead of saying it's because of factory farming, we have a methane problem. They point to the poor animal and say, that's the problem. So industrial agriculture is the big climate problem. No, get the rid of the small farmer. So, yeah. you know, and, and because they're working in the, combi- the new combination, you know, there was agriculture, there was agribusiness, there was biotech. There was the IT sector, the Silicon Valley, and there was the financial people. They've all become one cancerous lump, you know, one cancerous lump of fintech and biotech and this tech and that tech. And that's why those dialogues we had in San Francisco on big tech are so important. Yes. Because these trade treaties grow after, grow from the false narrative that. The power of the West comes from technology when it comes from plunder. We have the figures in India, $45 trillion transferred from India to England through colonialism. It wasn't technology that got them there. It was theft, it was plunder. So I think we've got to start demystifying corporations, technology, free trade, and it only can happen now. The time is over, we would just go get together and yeah. they've made sure people can't get together. The private jets can continue to fly. Yeah. And Gates has bought the biggest private jet service agency while he's pointing his finger to everyone else. You know, So <laughs> they want a world. At that time, they wanted a world where corporations have privilege. Now they want a world where only the billionaires and corporations can operate and everyone else will be extinct. So it's the ultimate colonization. And therefore, therefore it must be the ultimate rising through solidarity. Yeah,
1: but I just want to come back to you when you said criminalization. I think one way to put it simply is that what we've witnessed through these series of trade treaties is the deregulation of global finance and trade. So these global corporations are given the freedom to move in and out of countries as they please, no restrictions whatsoever, free trade zones in countries, and as you know, signing government signing clauses in black and white, saying we will not do anything that might impede your profit-making potential. And if we do, you can sue us. So Swedish nuclear power companies sue suing Germany after Fukushima because they decide to out nuclear power. You have this absolute madness going on of these global corporations and banks having all the freedom to run our government. And one of the things they're doing is ensuring that governments overregulate local activities, local businesses, even yeah. regional and national businesses. So when you say
2: criminalizing, that's what it is. We're having yeah, a force yeah, yeah. declare, declare illegal, yeah. invade, invade. Yeah. You know, they want to invade into everyone's home all the time now. And yeah. they may, you know, this idea of privacy. Yeah. has gone through the winds, the yeah. idea of liberty has gone through the winds, and uh, I think I think what we are witnessing right now is not just, you know, government signing agreements, in a way governments have been pushed out of the grain, you know, the UN has been pushed out, these treaties, you know, the climate treaty was written in the UN at the Earth Summit, the, food summits used to take place in Rome with the Food and Agriculture Organization. Gates was running yeah, yeah. the food summit okay. and, uh, and the BlackRock literally and the banks were running the climate summit. And this and we is have to, We have to yeah. make
1: clear to government
2: that they have to step back
1: and understand that they are impoverishing themselves as they go with their begging bowls to big corporations and banks and say, please will you do a PPP with us, a public-private partnership because we don't have so much anymore. And this is what's happened. Our governments have become servants to global corporations and banks. And in the meanwhile, at the local government level, we are being policed, I mean, even you know, throughout the West as well, whether it's about seeds, it's a, whether it's about housing, you want to build a new house, you can have local governments coming in and interfering to measure how high the steps are inside a home. While at the global level, the deregulation means that corporations can pollute and, and threaten life on Earth, you know, whether it's through genetic engineering new forms of nuclear and also banana. We really need to make it clear that the big green new deal that's being pushed by big business, the climate agenda framed around carbon so that global corporations can trade, play around with the realities on the ground to actually extract more profit in the name of being green. And all this investment opportunity In green energy in particular, you know, they're building windmill farms in Sweden, cutting down forest to build windmill farms where there's barely any wind. And it's all a corporate game. It's a paper game. It's not even about generating wind anymore. It is really truly unbelievable what's happening. And I I think now that people are ready to hear the message Big corporations have too much power. Local businesses are being punished. Local farmers are being destroyed. Will you join a movement to support our farmers and to support our local businesses and to insist that we start a process of regulating global businesses and banks? I don't know, would you, you know, I'm sort of envisioning a type of, Breakaway strategy where we start pressuring certain governments to come together to cooperate to say, Sorry, we are not going to allow deregulated capital, deregulated corporate vampires to chew up more of our water, our soil, our people. And, and you know, we need to be saying it from a global perspective because it's true, the abuse in some cases was worse in the colonial era in a place like India, that when I look at what's happening in Australia, when I look at what's happening in America with the poverty in the Appalachians, you know, what this U.S. government is doing to its own people. So I think we, from a global point of view, we're arguing for the people of the earth and for the earth itself and for... Um, process of simply saying how can you allow these deregulated banks and corporations to have total freedom to extract as much wealth as they want and then also to play around with money creation so they create money out of thin air to fuel this rape of our soil our water our minerals.
2: On the fake solutions from for climate change, for example, and this Green New Deal, I have called it carbon colonization. It's purely, it's carbon colonization that mixes up dead fossil carbon with living carbon, which we must have more and more of in order to have a beautiful living, thriving planet. The planet is living carbon. She buried the dead carbon. They mix up carbon, all carbon is a villain, yeah? Except their carbon, yeah? Uh, So, Carbon colonization is the new colonization, and uh, and it's not the case that there aren't other ecological problems. You know, species extinction is a big problem, biodiversity erosion. Is... But somehow everything else has been removed to establish carbon colonization, because you can tell a lie more easily with it. You yeah? know, you know the causes and the impacts are so separated. Whereas you know, when I just the forest is destroyed, we know BlackRock is financing it, but. When the uh, snow melts in the Himalaya, you know, the the separation in space and time makes it more easy for the liars to tell a lie about what's going on and what are the solutions. Um, I think, you know, Gandhi had, just like our IFG group, was looking into the future and saying, this is what free trade will do, and it's done. All the things we are witnessing today Everything we were saying then hadn't happened, but it has happened. Uh, Gandhi also in his little book *Hind Swaraj, where you know, he was fighting the, the regime that had made, made Indians criminal in South Africa. And he'd gone as a lawyer trained in England, you know, Cambridge or wherever. And uh, he was thrown out of the train. And then they passed a law that Indians couldn't trade, Indians couldn't be professionals. The indentured labor that had been liberated five years later couldn't do any work. And then the whole, uh, you know, 1906, this Indian Act, they all rose against it. And that's the first time he used the practice and the word called satyagre, the fight for truth. And I think we need a global satyagre. Of course, we need willing governments to come together. But we need every individual to say, this is wrong. This is criminal. This is wrong. I will not participate. I will just not participate in this. And that's where the, the force of truth is your support. And you are fighting for truth. And as Gandhi said so beautifully, he said, at best they can t- kill you, right? But they can't take anything from you. Yeah, they, they can't force you. If you have decided these are the right things to do for the earth, for your community, for your for our future. But the second is the the idea of Swaraj and swadeshi. So Swaraj is self-rule and self-governance. Well, two years of COVID, haven't we learned how to take care of ourselves? Shouldn't we make that a permanent way to govern rather than let these criminals rule our lives? So we should make self-rule the second principle. And all of this is in my book, Oneness Versus 1%. And then the third principle of swadeshi. Making locally, consuming locally, producing locally, that is the local economy. Yeah. That's what is the future. And of course, they'll come in the way to say you can't do it. And that's where we have to say, but I will. And you want to throw me into jail? Let's, them, let's see them put 7 billion people into jail. Yeah. And also,
1: not I will, we will, you know, creating that sense of uh, we at the local level. So as local communities, we come together. That's where yeah. we're stronger, you know. And but you can't the, produce.
2: <laughs> You can't produce locally unless you're a community. And the way to divorce yourself from this big money and big finance and their criminal rules, uh, which are rules of extinction for humanity and the earth, is to basically say, we will come back to the wealth of society. That is community. We will come back to the wealth of the earth. That is nature's gifts. If we just say you tricked us into thinking of dependence on you, We'll free ourselves in our mind and join hands to create the kind of democracies and economies that work for people. That's what, you know, after Seattle, I wrote Earth Democracy. That's what it is. If you, if you have to get out of their slavery, the freedom we have to create is together locally. You know, I
1: remember, day when we were sitting in my bedroom in Ladakh. And you were just thinking about the language and thought of the word earth democracy. And I completely agree, very good. But of course, I think for many people when they talk about earth democracy, they can often in a misguided way believe that we could have one global government for the entire earth. And that's why I love it when you said plural, communities, cultures, democracies, and that's Mm -hmm. why I call it localization. And of course, local can sound a bit too local. It needs, it can be, you know, smaller groups linked into regions, linked into larger entities. And ultimately, we need to link hands across the earth as a movement, that as economies, we need obviously that decentralization, that is localization. And I I feel that your uh, voice right now you know, is, is more in our voice. I think it's more important than ever. So I hope you agree that not only um, is it good to have the International Forum on Globalization, but also the International Alliance for Localization. I think that can of course have, have clarity. Of course, and, of course. Yeah. yeah. And I think now, Vandana, that we should be starting the discussion online, because I don't think we can wait anymore now to meet. And recently, I'm sure you will agree that in my organization, Local Futures, we're thinking we've got to now address in particular AI, and the threat of AI in agriculture, the threat of AI in completely manipulating our thinking, and threatening to, um, to really take us onto that next level of transhumanism. What do you think, honestly, in the future, Vanna? Imagine 50 years from now, what do you think the world might look like? And how would we have got to...
2: There won't be a world uh, in which we will be. There. We will not be there. You think we'll be extinct? We, if they carry on on this rate, because yeah. they're... Their deployment is so quick, and, and because it's linked to what I call criminalization, which yes. means using law to prohibit that which would sustain life, you know, they want to ban life. Yeah. 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 That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That, and the in and the point is, it's not a side effect anymore. Know. You know, it is the intention yeah. to extinguish life. It, you see, the colonizers didn't want to extinguish life, they wanted to extinguish culture. The colonizers want to get rid of cultures. These guys want to get rid of thinking and cultures that allow life to exist. And so, you, in
1: like, their minds, they don't say I'm getting rid of life. In their minds, they're getting rid of the messiness and the chaos and the loss. Of course, they're cleaning it up. They're cleaning it up has the to be planet. Controlled. Yeah. The clean cleanup project. Clean up, yeah. yeah and it's the same thing you know it goes back to the war against germs it's it's a war against life yeah yeah and the the other thing that i feel you know we we're talking about climate not being the only thing but i'm more and more seeing the pesticide and chemical you know the chemical pesticide fungicide i'm convinced are <laughs> the major cause of cancer
2: this epidemic of cancer of course yeah. I mean it was known five percent cancers are genetic everything yeah. else is the toxics in the environment yeah and why otherwise would you have climate uh, cancer clusters yeah you know Bhopal is a cancer cluster and everywhere I and mean, in the Mississippi the valley the cancer alley it's called these you know you can map the epidemiological issue the point is mr gates through the taking over health system has ended destroyed epidemiology and substituted with computer algorithms that can be designed to say what you want them to say you know? so it's the end of epidemiology yeah yeah Well, what we have to again there basically say
1: it's the end of any honest research of any kind
2: <laughs> of knowledge and, it's yeah. the end of knowledge and, and the end of the knowledge and life. yeah end of knowledge and life if they get there with. Yeah, if
1: but get
2: what, and, and how big an if do you think that is? What do you think? Are well, I think there's three three big uh, reasons why we don't have to treat it as a certainty. First, things happen, you know. I mean, there's this young student leader who's a president. Yeah. And the more they're pushing people, the less the the consensus will be. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. The consensus, consensus will break down more and more and more, yeah. you know, which allowed these guys to rule the acceptance somehow that they were good for us and the myths they had created, that crack will happen. We don't know how fast it can happen where we, we can't predict that, you know, and that's where my whole uncertainty, uh, yeah. basic idea that the world has uncertainty. The second is uh, the wake up of people, you know, we don't know. And then the third is uh, disasters. They do things for, you know, and what Fukushima did for the nuclear narrative.
1: Yeah.
2: I know this because the other day, one guy had to uh, to do a TV program on on, uh, renewables. And of course there was a paid guy on nuclear. That is the cleanest technology and doesn't have carbon emissions. And I said, when you have radiation, you don't look for carbon. I said, no, can you stop? It? And and then he kept saying, oh, India, for India to be so brilliant and it's cheap. And then I said, you know, every community where a nuclear plant was to be put up started having protests after the Fukushima disaster. They had the intelligence to connect Fukushima to the disasters they could face. You think you can manufacture everyone's thinking? I said, Indians are refusing nuclear. Ordinary grassroots people are refusing nuclear. Don't force this. But Fukushima changed, as you said, The you know, Germany had to say no. Yeah. Germany, so what will happen, where will trigger what, uh, those disasters are beyond our prediction. Yeah,
1: and also I think it's very good that we're saying this now as we conclude, because there is quite a narrative out there about extinction. There is a narrative out there that's extremely... Uh, depressing for many people with this sort of certainty that we're going extinct and and it's linked also to the conviction that human beings by nature are aggressive and greedy and so i think it's very very good what you're saying is what i also say which is it's hubris to claim to know that we're going extinct it's hubris in the face of all this complexity we've just talked about we can see all these cracks. We know that life is infinitely complex. So even in terms of the heating up of the planet, we can't with certitude know exactly how Gaia will react. Of course, we want to immediately reduce and eliminate our use of fossil fuels. But again, this sort of certainty. you I remember with James Lovelock too, predicting with such certitude 30, 40 years ago, yes. what would have happened by now, But I think there is that hope, as you say, in the waking up that is going on, in the potential cracks in the system. And like you were saying, with disaster, a lot of what we've seen around the world is not only sort of wake up that came out of Fukushima, but also how people come together at the local level. So there are lots of good news stories in terms of community building in disaster. So we'll, yeah, I think we want to end with a, a warning, a very strong warning that um, please don't just wake up yourself, but I call this big picture activism.
2: Spread the word. Localization for survival, localization yeah. for a future. Yeah, that's what we build on, yeah. So thank you so much, Mandana
1: And love to Mira and Tikku as well.
0: To delve deeper into the global to local worldview, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on social media and join our mailing list at localfutures.org. Also, keep an eye out for a newly released collection of essays by Helena and her colleagues called Life After Progress, technology, community, and the new economy. With a foreword by Bioecoma Lafe, Life After Progress questions widely held assumptions about human nature, technology, and economic development, imagining fundamentally different futures and mapping steps towards them. Charles Eisenstein writes, As these pages show, beyond progress lies not stagnation or collapse, but a profound renewal of community, society, and ecology. You can find the collection at localfutures.org. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Local Futures podcast.